Let me invite you to turn to Luke chapter 6 this evening. Luke chapter 6. Following Christ is a radical change from our former way of life. And it stands in stark contrast to the way that the world lives. And I would say that it stands even in stark contrast to mainstream Christianity. That is, that that nominal Christians, Christians in name only, they don't live like true disciples of Christ. The Pharisees despised Jesus because He claimed to be God. So they had a problem with Him. And over the last couple chapters we've seen this, that He claimed to forgive sins and that He ate with sinners and that He seemed to degrade fasting because His disciples weren't fasting. And also He seemed to have an irreverence for the Sabbath day. Jesus explains that He is the Lord of the Sabbath and it is okay for us to eat grain on the Sabbath, to pick grain and eat it on the Sabbath, and for Him to heal on the Sabbath, which He does with the the man with the withered hand. And so here we have the eternal Son of God validating that He is the Messiah with His great authority and teaching and healing and casting out demons, and yet He's still rejected and persecuted. And so we might think, well, if the true Messiah comes into His own people and His own reject Him, maybe all people are going to be that way. All people are going to reject Him. But then He calls His twelve to follow Him. And now He's going to teach them what it looks like to follow Him. And what we find is that not all receive Jesus the way that the Pharisees do, that most of the Pharisees do. That some accept Him. Some follow Him. Some hear His voice. And they know Him and they follow Him. And that's what this passage is about. Jesus is teaching them about radical discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of His? So let's begin reading in chapter 6 with, with verse 20. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. This is the Word of God. And turning His gaze toward His disciples, He began to say, Blessed are you, who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, Offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man came 
Uh, a blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do, do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. Jesus calls us to live radical lives in a world that lives for the moment. We live in a world that lives for the here and now. And Jesus is calling us to live a life that is much different than that world. Now, as you probably recognize, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, one of the ways you know that is because of the blessed parts at the beginning, the Beatitudes as they're called, but also because of its similarity to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, notice in chapter 6 of Luke, verse 17, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. So we might think, well, that doesn't sound like a mountain, but as you rec- if you live in the hills at all or, or know anything about them, you know that, that there are plateaus on mountains, so this actually likely is the Sermon on the Mount, which also is the Sermon on the Plain. Okay, the Sermon on the Plateau of the Mountain. Probably a ridge of hills that is northwest of Capernaum, as most scholars believe, and it overlooks the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus gathers. Notice who He gathers here. We saw this last week, but verse 17. So, He took His disciples there because it says Jesus came down with them. That's these twelve that He had just chosen. And there was a large crowd of His disciples. So, a larger group of disciples his disciples, the twelve, and then a larger group of disciples, and, verse 17, a great throng of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, coastal region of Tyre, Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed by him. Okay, so they come to be healed and to hear his teaching, and we have this large crowd that has gathered. It says in, I think it's verse 19, that Jesus healed them all. He took time one by one, as he would do. He never spread his hand out. As far as I can tell, he didn't spread his hand out over a whole crowd and heal them all at once. One by one, he would touch them or speak to them or, or rub their eyes or whatever the case. So, how do we understand this Sermon on the Mount? Because I hope that as you've gone through here, there's a couple things that don't seem to fit with us who live in a church age. Right? This, this sounds like it's more for the Old Testament believer. It sounds more like even a kingdom believer. There are some things in here that are um, that are apart from the person reciprocating to us are almost impossible to follow. Okay? So so you might be thinking that that uh, this is binding on us because we are like the same audience as Jesus audience here, but we are not like them. We are actually different than them. The crowd remember is made up of people who are living in what dispensation? What era would we say that they're a part of? Okay, they're under the law, right? They're still under the Old Testament law. When does the Old Testament law become abrogated or fulfilled? What is it? Okay, Pentecost is when it transitions really, but it starts at the death of Christ. What happens? 
Remember what happens to the temple curtain? It's torn in two. It says now it basically symbolizes for us that we now have entrance to God apart from the Levitical system, right? The priestly system. That's where it begins. But but you're right, it takes on its full force. The church age begins at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That's when the church begins. So, Jesus is talking to Old Testament people who are under the Old Testament law, and we are not under the Old Testament law. Uh, verses 27 to 31, we have this part where, you know, if someone strikes you on the cheek, then give them the other one. If someone takes your shirt, then give them your undershirt. Is the idea there? Okay. That kind of living is not what Jesus is calling, I believe, church age. Now, we can learn from that, and I'm going to show you how we can. But, but He's not calling us for, for us to literally do that. Okay? That's something that requires uh, reciprocation. That is, that the other person needs to... It, it's, I think, something that Jesus is setting in a kingdom context. So here's what we have. Jesus now is at a place where He is offering the kingdom to these Old Testament believers. And if they will accept Him as the Messiah, the kingdom will be ushered in at this point. And then they can start obeying these principles that are designed. I hope you recognize that some of these are pointing forward to the kingdom age. Verse 20, uh, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Okay, there, There's a future-looking aspect to what Jesus is talking about. So He says, live in such a way because here is the kingdom. It's right in your midst, as he would say in other places. So, it's difficult for us to take this passage and try to to uh, plug it in to one specific point in history. That is, one people group. That, what Jesus is doing, he's speaking to believers who are under the Old Testament law, who are offered the kingdom, and who, who could have the, the kingdom come to them if if the Jewish people as a whole would accept him. So, Dr. Snowberger in his study of, of the Sermon on the Mount suggests that it is best to see this sermon as addressed to an audience that was offered the kingdom but who had not received it. So, what this means for us is that we can draw from this an ideal ethic. That is, a righteousness that looks forward to kingdom life. So, in some ways, we are like this audience we are also looking forward to kingdom life. So there's the similarity. The difference is we're not under the Old Testament law. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to... This is an ideal ethic. This is how life ought to be as a believer. And so what we can do from this, without these, these commands being binding, we can still gain value from the principles and apply the principles to our lives and actually be pleasing to God in that way. So let's think about principles for us who are in the church age here in this passage. Okay, Number one, the radical life of a believer takes into account the next life. The radical life of a believer takes into account the next life. Verses 20 through 26. Here in verses 20 through 26, Jesus sets up a contrast between the blessed life and the woeful life. Or the cursed life. Okay, and it, let me just show you how that works. Verse 20 Blessed are you who are what? Poor. Notice the contrast. The very first woe that he, he gives in verse 24 is woe to you who are what? Verse 24 Woe to you who are rich. So he says, Blessed are you who are poor. Woe to you who are rich. Let me show you the next one. Verse 21 Blessed are you who hunger now. Then verse 20. Um, Verse 25, Woe to, to you who are well fed. You see how Jesus is making this contrast? Luke sets it up in this way. Matthew um, lays it out a little bit differently. doesn't mean that one's... It's a completely different sermon necessarily. It just means that, that Luke is just um, explaining what's, what he's saying here in a different way. Okay, so let's take this first one. Okay, if we're going to look... If we're going to take into account the, the next life, then we have to recognize that there is a contrast between the spiritually aware and the self-righteous. So when he says, Woe to you who are rich, and blessed are you who are poor, verses 20 and 24, he's talking about not physically poor. He's not saying, Those of you who have very little money, you are blessed. And the person who's sitting there without any money is thinking, I don't feel very blessed. 
right? He's not talking about physically poor. He's talking about those who are aware of their own spiritual poverty. Turn back to chapter 5 and look at verse 31. Chapter 5, verse 31. I think he's making a contrast between those who are aware of their own sin, those who are poor when it comes to what do I have to offer you, God? When I come before you, we sing, nothing in my hands I bring. That kind of poverty. That's what he's talking about. As opposed to the, the Pharisees who come before God and say, look what I have to offer you. Right? I am spiritually rich. Why would you not let me into heaven? Right? Look at chapter 5, verse 31. And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I haven't come to call those who are self-righteous. And I think what he's saying here in chapter 6, verse 24, those who are self-righteous, those who are rich when it comes to their understanding of their own spiritual condition. The self-righteous are those who gain the whole world but Christ makes clear in verse 24 and in Matthew 16:26, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet he loses his own soul? His point is in verse 24 that they have their comfort in full. If you feel that you're okay before God because of all of your spiritual accolades, you have everything that All the comfort that you get from that, you have. That's what you're going to get. You're not going to get anything else in the next life. Notice what what he says about those who are poor. Verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It belongs to you. That's what God made it for. He made it for us who recognize our own spiritual poverty. You see, this idea of you only live once is false. Okay? We, We live to die and to live, we live for another life. We live for the next life. The, re- re- the reward for those who acknowledge their spiritual desperation is the kingdom of God. And I think that this refers to both spiritual riches and to physical riches. That is, financial riches. You will be rich in the next life. You will take part in all the spoils that come with winning the battle. You will take part of all the uh, the great financial rewards of being a part of the greatest kingdom on the earth ever to exist. So the contrast between the spiritually aware, that is, um, those who recognize their sinners, and the self-righteous. The next contrast he sets up is in verses 21 and 25, and it's the contrast between those who desire God and those who oppose Him. Look at verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. And then verse 25. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Do you see the reversal there? If you are hungry now, then you will be, uh, then you will be satisfied one day. Speaking, I think, of the kingdom. But if you're well fed now, then there's going to come a time when you're hungry. Again, I don't think this refers to physical hunger. Okay, so those of us, you know, who who eat a little too much, you know, doesn't mean that we're going to go hungry in the kingdom. That's not the idea, and and the reversal is not not the case as well. I think this is talking about if we go to Matthew chapter five, we would see that it's hungering and thirsting for what righteousness, right? It's talking about spiritual things. It's it's a desire for God and His truth. And here's the promise. If we desire God now, and we're going to be satisfied in the next life. We're going to be satisfied in Christ. But if we are well fed now, you know we've got all we want of God and His truth. We don't want any more. Kind of full on that. Then in the next life, we will be hungry. We will go without the knowledge of God. And so it's it's contrasted with those who, you know, they, they live their lives. You know people like this who live their lives and they have seemingly no earthly cares. They don't care about what God has to say about anything and they seem to be cruising through life. 
And God says, there's coming a day when reckoning will come. But there's also coming a day where you will be you will be rewarded for the way that you thirsted for righteousness and hungered for righteousness and it will be re- rewarded with you drinking at the well of God's goodness. All right, the third contrast is the contrast between those who struggle for God's sake and those who mock him. Those who struggle for God's sake and those who mock him. Look at the end of verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Again, think spiritual And then the second part of verse 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So there's the the contrast that Jesus is setting up. If you're laughing now spiritually in a mocking way, then don't be surprised in the next life when that turns into mourning. And if you're mourning now spiritually, then don't be surprised when you laugh in the next life. There come a day when your groaning will be turned into laughter. Like Revelation 21, 4 says, there will be no more crying, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more disease or dying. And there will come a day when the happiness of the wicked wicked turns into judgment. Number four, the contrast between the persecuted and the popular. The persecuted and the popular. The persecuted are in verses 22 through 23. So in this life, blessed are you when men hate you. Kind of kind of a strange way to say that someone is blessed or happy, right? When men hate you and when they ostracize you, when they insult you, when they scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man, be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. That's put in contrast to those who are popular now. Verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So, just a basic principle that Jesus is saying, if you are suffering right now for the sake of Christ, if people hate you because of your love for Christ, you will be rewarded. Just like the prophets of old. They hated the prophets of old too, didn't they? Because they spoke on behalf of God. Because they followed God. Why would you waste your life on following God? And God's saying, listen, you will be rewarded. Specifically, um, he says your reward will be great in heaven in verse 23. But those who live a life of ease now and who are only being treated that way because uh, because of the way that they are, then, then they are like the false prophets. The false prophets were treated with with lots of of love, lots of goodness. People liked them. They were popular. But the reason that's the way is because because that is the that is the wide way that leads to destruction so there's a contrast between those who live for this life and those who live for the next if all we're thinking about is the here and now and what's happening the immediate circumstances that are going on in life and we're not thinking about living our lives in terms of the next life then we're going to be disappointed that's why we need to have that eternal perspective that 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 kingdom perspective. This is a radical call of discipleship by Christ, and it will bring about present hardship. We need to know how we're going to respond when people mistreat us, when people hate us, when people ostracize us. And uh, Jesus says that if you put all of your stock into the next life, you will be rewarded. So the radical life of, of a believer takes into account the next life. Number two, the radical life of a believer takes into account the, the Father's example, verses 27-38. The radical life of a believer takes into account the Father's example. The love that the Bible calls for is radically different from the love that the world offers. In our world, love is often viewed as a point system. Have you ever come across people who view love like a point system? Maybe it's in your own home that it happens on occasion. You know, if you do this, then I'll return the favor. You know, maybe if I'm extra good, then I can get this, right? Or because I did that, I need to make up for it in this way. We, we tend to use it as a point system. Here's how one man uh, scored points at his house with his marriage. Okay, so simply... Simple duties, he says. 
You make the bed, plus one point. Talking of himself as the husband. You make the bed, but forget the decorative pillow. Zero points. Okay, you throw the bedspread over crumpled sheets. Negative one. You see, he's got this point system that he's figured out. You check out a suspicious noise at night. Zero points. Right, that's your duty. You check out a suspicious noise and it's nothing. Zero points. Nothing special. You check out a suspicious noise and it is something. Plus five. See, he's he's on the positive here. You pummel it with an iron rod. Plus ten. You find out that it's her cat, negative 50. Uh, how about this on his physique? You develop a noticeable pot belly, negative 15 points. You develop a noticeable pot belly and exercise to get rid of it, plus 10. You develop a noticeable pot belly and resort to baggy jeans and baggy Hawaiian shirts, negative 30. You say to her, after developing a noticeable pot belly, you say to her, it doesn't matter, you have one too. (laughs) Negative 8,000 points. See? And then here's the big question. She asks, do I look fat? (laughs) Negative five points just for her asking asking because it doesn't matter what the answer is. You hesitate in responding to, do I look fat? Negative 10 points. You reply to her question, do I look fat? What do you mean? Negative 35 points. Any other response? Negative 20. And that's kind of humorous, but but sometimes that's the way we treat love, like a point system. Like, I've done this special thing, and now here's what I deserve in return. I deserve something that's worth this many points. I deserve to sit down and watch the game without distraction. Because love often in our day, and even sometimes in our home, is seen as a contract. That is, that if I do something, you have to do something in return. If you really loved me, you would do this. But here's what radical discipleship is about. This is the love that God calls us to. It's the love that God has for us. Does God use a point system with us when He draws us to Himself? Hey, the love that Jesus demands seeks out the good of others. Listen to this. No matter how they respond or treat you. That is biblical love. Jesus says in verses 27 to 31 that genuine love includes love for enemies. Verse 22, we should recognize that we will have enemies, right? Blessed are you when men hate you. Okay, so you're going to have enemies. Verse 27, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. The natural reaction to those who mistreat us is what? Mistreat them back, right? That's kind of the negative point system idea. If they've done this to me, then I deserve to do this. To do, they deserve for me to do this to them. Here in verse 29, it says, Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. This striking on the cheek is actually, or literally, striking on the jawbone. So this is not just a little slap across the face like we might see in a a sitcom, but it is striking on the jawbone. So if someone punches your face, your response is not to retaliate, but rather to be willing to suffer greater injury. If someone takes your shirt, then offer them your undershirt as well. Go a little bit farther. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you know, go the extra mile for them. If they tell you to take one mile, take a second. Genuine love includes a love for enemies. Genuine love does not seek reciprocation. That's where love is distinguished from all of this infatuation that goes on in our world. Christian love does not seek reciprocation. That is a return. And here's the main principle stated for us as you've heard probably thousands of times in verse 31. Treat others, the golden rule, Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. So here's a very simple principle that we all should consider when we're trying to help someone else. What is it that I would want them to do for me if I were in their shoes? That's what I'm going to do for them. And then he gives three examples in verses 32 to 35. Verse 32, even sinners love those who love them. This is always 
a shot between the eyes for me. Even sinners love those who love them in return. Even sinners, when they're when they recognize that you've, you know, built up a lot of points, they're willing to give you some points back. Like, oh, you invited us over for dinner. That was so nice. We'll invite you over for dinner. Right? But sinners do that. So that's not anything special. Here's what Jesus is saying. Try loving someone who doesn't deserve it and who won't do anything in return. Now that's Christian love. Verse 33, the second example, even sinners do good to those who do good to them. The third example, verse 34, even sinners lend to sinners. Like, oh, I, here, here's some money you can borrow. Well, sinners do that expecting a return. Here's the real challenge. How about giving without a thought of return? See, by nature, we operate with a point system. I'll return the favor as long as you do something good for me. Or, if I can be sure that you will return the favor in some way, I'll give to you out of, of, only out of a sense of obligation. But Jesus is calling for something greater. Give without the thought of return. And doesn't this make sense when we consider the principle of verse 31? I mean, how do you like it when people give to you and they expect something in return? To me, I would rather that they not give at all if they're expecting something back, right? It's like, are, are you giving this to me or are you, you, are you, you trying to manipulate me? What, what are you giving this for? It doesn't feel like it's coming from you, right? And sometimes you can tell. Sometimes our hearts just uh, maybe cloud what is really in in their hearts, which may be genuine. Okay, reasons to love this way, verses 35 and 36. The end of verse 35, and your reward will be great. Again, we're looking forward to the kingdom, to the, the time in which we'll be in heaven. And you'll be the sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So, if you purpose in your heart and actually do live in such a way apart from the contract kind of love the obligation kind of love if you start loving without a thought of return you can expect for God to reward you and you can expect at the end of verse 35 that God will that God will treat you as a son of the most high that is not that you're going to become a Christian because you love this way but rather you demonstrate that you are one of His children. That's the point. True children of God live like their Father. And here's how we demonstrate it. We love like God loves. We treat people kindly, with love, even though they may not deserve it. Look at verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. See, to be a child of our Father means that we share His characteristics. Just like you share the characteristics of your father, so you share the characteristics of God if you're a child of God. And in this case, God has a characteristic of mercy. He is merciful to even ungrateful and even wicked enemies like we. And therefore, we should be that way with others. And then, when we consider that we follow our Father's examples, we also must recognize that genuine love does not prejudge. Verses 37 and 38. Genuine love does not prejudge. Okay, so the idea is not that all human judgment is wrong. I hope you recognize that. Our world uses this verse. This is one of the most popular verses in America for sure. Don't judge. Okay, don't judge lest you be judged. And what they mean by that is let me live however I want to live. Don't try using the Scriptures to tell me what the truth is. They don't want to be bothered. That's how they use the verse. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, we have a responsibility as believers to judge ourselves. That is, as a church. Right? God will judge those outside the church, but we have a responsibility, 1 Corinthians 5, to judge those inside the church. That's our responsibility. So we need to be using the Scriptures to expose people's sins and to judge them. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Okay, Jesus is talking about prejudging. That is, let's see if this person is worthy of my love. And if they are, then I will do something for them. Have you ever done that? 
you know, if I end up spending my life and my energy on helping that person, I'm not going to have anything left for myself. Or I'm not going to get anything in return. And Jesus is saying, listen, instead of prejudging them, are they worthy? Is it going to be worth it? Instead, why don't you show love to them, release them from the obligation of returning the favor and responding the way that you want them to respond. Instead, just show the love to them. And when we love this way, we will show ourselves to be forgiven. Verse 37, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. This is not a Christian karma here, that if you do good to people, good's going to come back to you from other people. I think the point is, is that when you do this, God's going to pardon you. You're going to show yourself as pardoned when you pardon other people. We are rewarded by God. And this reward is shown for us in verse 38. It, it will be poured into our lap, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. So what you need to recognize is that these farmers would wear these long robes and they would have a flap on the front. And they would pull up the flap and fill it with grain and so that they could carry this back. You know, It would be like their bushel basket. They would carry back to, to the storage area. And so what, what, what God is promising here is that it will be like that. that. That it will be that kind of a blessing that you'll have this huge load of grain poured into your lap and it's going to be shaken so that all the pockets of air are taken out, falls down to the bottom, and then pressed down and then filled back up and overflowing. That's how much God's going to give to you when you show love in the way that He's calling you to. Friends, we don't live for this world. We live for the rewards primarily that come in the next world. Now, obviously we do receive rewards in this world. There is a great reward to just treating others with love. But but the primary place in which we will receive our rewards comes in the next life. So, point number one. The radical life of a believer takes into account the next life. Number two, it takes into account the Father's example. And then number three, the radical life of a believer takes into account the reality of the human heart. It takes into account the reality of the human heart. Verses 39 through 49. Remember, Jesus is talking to a group that is primarily made up of disciples. And yet, there are unbelievers likely in the crowd. And so he's going to, over these last 11 verses, expose some of them for their fraud. He wants them to recognize that the radical life of a believer takes into account the reality of the human heart. Verses 39 through 45, the words of our mouth reveal what what is in our heart. The words of our mouth reveal what is in our heart. Jesus moves from an ideal ethic to call people to examine their own hearts. And He gives three principles about spiritual blindness. First, those who are spiritually blind follow those who are spiritually blind. Isn't that true? Right? Those who are spiritually blind, they just blindly follow these people who are leading them into the pit, as Jesus says, verse 39. Secondly, spiritual blindness tells, the, tells you that you are better than your teacher, verse 40. Right? No, no pupil is better than his teacher, Jesus says. Now, what we need to keep in mind is that His day was much different than our days. We have multiple teachers, don't we? Right? We have actual teachers. We have books who serve as our teachers. We have all these resources. We have radio programs. We have commentaries. We have the completed scriptures. So we have all these different teachers. But back then, a person would follow one teacher, one rabbi. And for a student to say that they had passed their teacher and ability and understanding was the height of arrogance. So Jesus is saying, if you're spiritually blind, you're going to say that you're better than your teacher, but I'm telling you that you're not. You need to take into account your own human heart. Thirdly, the spiritual blindness justifies itself by highlighting the weaknesses of others. Spiritual blindness justifies itself by highlighting the weakness of others. And that's this idea, verse 41, of taking the looking at the speck at the other person's eye, which is just comical to think about while you have a huge beam in your own eye. Jesus says, get that taken care of before you start 
nitpicking at other people's little sins. If we're going to do that, we need to be real about our own hearts. Verses 43 to 46, the principles, there are a few principles about our heart. Our words reveal our hearts, right? Jesus is bringing his clearers along to a climax. Up until this point, they should be agreeing that a person's actions, they ought to be consistent with a person's heart. And in fact, the person's actions are eventually consistent with their heart. That eventually their actions will express what is in their heart. Out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Excuse me. But verse 46, notice here's the climax. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So here we have this group who think about it from their perspective, all thinking they're good, they're okay, and some of them are believers, probably need to shore up some areas in their radical life of discipleship, but others are saying, you know, I've I've got this all covered. And now Jesus comes to a climax and He says, in verses 46 through 49, our hearts can deceive us. And so there are two truths in these last four verses that we must understand. First, many are deceived about their own hearts. Verse 46, many are deceived by their own hearts. That's why Jesus gives this illustration that follows. This illustration about a house that is built on a sand. Like the house that's built on the sand, the person might have all the external appearances of something that's solid and finished and good. And yet when the storms of life come through for a house that's built on the sand, what's going to happen? It's going to be revealed. It's going to be exposed. All that... External conformity, it looked like it was all set up. It looked fine on the outside. Yeah, God says, or Jesus says, we can be deceived about our own hearts. That's why, verse 46, many of you say to me, Lord, Lord. And yet, your life is not consistent with what I say. It's because you've built your house on on uh, on a weak foundation, on no foundation. Notice, notice what sets apart a good foundation from a weak foundation. I've pointed out this many times in other settings, but I'll point it out again. Verse 47, Everyone who comes to Me and hears My Word and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid a foundation. When the flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly... It's like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. So what's the difference between a house that's built on the sand or let's go first how Jesus did. The house that's built on the rock and the house that's built on the sand. What is the difference? Okay, what does the text say? Okay, look at verse 47 again. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word, stop there. Go down to verse 49. But the one who has, and we assume that they come to Him, and who has heard. So those two things are the same. They both hear God's Word. You see, it's not enough for us to be in church. We have to actually do something about it. And what is it? Look at verse 47 again. Everyone who comes to Me and hears My Word and acts on them. Here is the difference. Because our hearts can deceive us. We can be around lots of Christians and say, I'm okay. My house is built well. And it could be. But that's all externals. Here's, here's the point. Where's our foundation? On what is our foundation built? If it's built on the rock, then that means not that we are around Christians, not that we are at church. What is it? It's that we're coming to Christ, we're hearing Him, and we're doing something about it. Because the opposite is verse 49. The one who has heard and has not acted, their destruction will be great. And so back to the question, verse 46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? We might think that the follow-up question would be that they might ask Him, well, then how can a person's actions be consistent with what He says? 
So if we have a person over here who's saying, Lord, Lord, and he's not doing what Christ says, well, then how can they get all their actions to mash up with what they're saying? Lord, Lord. And Jesus is saying, no, you missed the point. You've built your house on the sand, and now you're asking, how can this house remain stable? And it doesn't happen. What you need is not a change of behavior. Let's, you know, let's move some furniture around. Let's take down some walls in the house. That's not the problem. The problem is the foundation. So the correct question is not, how can we become consistent with what we say, Lord, Lord? But instead, the correct question is, how can a person ever submit to Christ without acknowledging Him as Lord? Can a person submit to Christ without acknowledging Him as Lord? No, he can't. The, the answer, how can he? The answer is that a person must recognize the total authority that Jesus has and demands and be willing to accept His teaching in every area of life. It's not enough for us to say, God, I want You to save me from hell. God doesn't save people from hell who are not willing to follow Him. And that's why Jesus says, you must take up your cross and die, how often? Daily. And come and follow Me. You must deny yourself. Don't tell Me that you just want to be saved from all your troubles. You need to be willing to take My yoke upon you. Yes, My yoke is easy in comparison to the yoke of sin. And yes, His burden is light. But it is a yoke, isn't it? And it does require that we treat Him as Lord. What does Lord mean? What's another word for Lord? Master. So Jesus is saying, why are you calling me Master when you don't do what I say? How good of a slave or a servant would a person be if they just went around calling a person Master and never did anything the Master told them to do, right? This is why Jesus finishes with this closing illustration. He wants to strike them in the heart. Don't tell me that I am your Lord if you're not following me. Don't tell me that you're all okay. Your house looks nice if your foundation is built on the sand. And that means that you are around the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, I would say even reading the Word of God, but it's not changing you. Don't tell me that I'm your Lord. People who choose to follow Jesus because they think their life will be easier are surprised to find out that discipleship is costly, isn't it? And so what happens? They either turn away and go back to their life of ease or they persevere all the way till the end. And friends, what I'm telling you is that no one can be a disciple who is not willing to give up everything in order to follow Christ. He must be willing to give it all up. Even despite the opposition that we will face, we have to persevere. The One of the last classes of Christianity Explored is entitled, Come and Die. Come and Die. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Give up that former way of life and come and follow Me. Jesus states it clearly in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 23, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. You know the difference between Christianity and all the other world religions? Christians give control of their lives fully to God. The Christian life is not about the Christian. They submit themselves to God. All other religions are self-centered. They're about that point system. Did you ever recognize that? It's like they got a point system with their gods. And if I do these things, right? If I if I go to mass, here's this many points, and now I can spend it. How am I going to spend it? Well, I had all sorts of good ideas, all sorts of vices that I love. And now, oh, looks like my count went down to zero. I need to get back and build up my points again. And what we're saying is, 
We don't have a point system with God. All that I have is yours. I'm giving it all to you. Take me. Lead me. And that's why Jesus says we must deny ourselves and take up our cross. Make a commitment that will lead to rejection and persecution. If you walk away from this message thinking that you are okay and that nothing in your life needs to change, then may may I suggest to you that, that you very likely are deceived? I mean, are you really loving as selflessly as Christ demands here? Do you really give of yourself without thought of return? Do you really treat others? Let's just make it personal. Do you really treat other believers in this church like you want them to treat you? See, we all need to improve in how we view our own lives and how we view Christ. And tonight we see that this life as a Christian is a radical life of discipleship and it's all about serving God, denying ourselves, and serving others. It's about a proper evaluation of our own hearts. It's about a constant reorientation to following Christ. As if, you know, it's not that I'm trying to get you unsaved here so you can get resaved or anything like that. It's that we have this idea of what discipleship is. We start down that path and then we start to veer off because we see some things that, that might be a little bit more pleasurable, might make make our lives a little bit easier. And this is a message that helps us reorient ourselves back to that right path of discipleship. And the way that we follow Christ is not just to hang around people who know Him or hang around people who follow Him. It's not just about listening to Him. It's not about external conformity. It's not about behaviorism. It's about basing our entire existence on His rule in our life. It's about hearing His Word and acting on it. That is the radical life that Christ has called us to. Let's pray. Father, lead us to where we need to go. Expose for us our sin. Help us to see where we need to change. May You be pleased to draw us closer to Yourself. And Lord, even if there there is difficulty ahead, because of our stand for Jesus Christ. May we follow You, our Savior, wherever the pathway may go, through the storms or through the valley or through the trials, solo. And we can do that because we rest in You and we trust in You and we place our life in Your hands. Lord, we will follow You. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, anyone need a prayer sheet for tonight?